In March of 2017, Lance Geiger, from the basement of his house in O'Fallon, Illinois, created a new business. However, his business can be seen all over the world on YouTube. Since that day in 2017, Geiger has been known as, quote, the history guy, unquote. He has produced hundreds of 10 to 15 minute short documentaries on history. In his home studio, the history guy is surrounded by hundreds of artifacts, including military hats and ship models from military operations. And Lance Geiger is always dressed in his trademark dark suit, black rim glasses, and a bow tie. Lance Geiger, the history guy, in one of your talks or interviews, I heard you say, I don't suggest people cite me as a resource for research papers. Why would you say that about your history? Well, you know, I'll be honest. I do uh, mostly secondary history. I don't do a lot of primary research. Uh, and so I'm mostly, you know, quoting what other people have done. I really think of myself more as a storyteller. I, I love history and I want to help other people love history. Uh, and I hope that I spark people to go research history. Uh, but I, I don't want to try to claim that these videos that I'm producing, you know, three times a week are the same kind of research that if you go out and, and do your own research or if you look at a book that's got good bibliography and things like that. So uh, I know that I'm used in some educational settings, uh, but I, I don't really recommend that I be a primary source. Uh, it's kind of different kind of history than, than a lot of the historians that you have on this podcast. Talk about the history guy, y your program. How many of them have you done? Uh, how many episodes have we done? Uh, we're um, over 700 now, somewhere in there, uh, at the end of this year. So a lot. Uh, and it, it's a lot of fun because we get to talk about a lot of different things. You started with five, minute, five minutes, and then you went to as much as 15 minutes. Why did you make them longer? <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, the original idea, uh, and I was kind of just kind of following my nose at the time, was five minutes of history. And, and what I found was, uh, they started just eking out a little bit longer, and then people were complaining that the name of the channel was Five Minutes of History, and they were going seven minutes or eight minutes. And so I just gave myself a little bit more leeway to tell the stories that I want to tell. And now I say uh, between uh, 10 and 15 minutes, and some of them go out of the 17 or 18 minutes. But I've just decided that I'm not going to hold myself to that because what's really important to me is that I tell the story, and, and uh, I try to fit that to the time that best fits. As people are listening to this, and if they've never listened to you or watched you, where do they find you? Uh, you can easily find me on YouTube. Uh, all of our videos are on our website, which is really easy. That's thehistoryguide.com. Uh, but I'm also the history guy. History deserves to be remembered on YouTube. Where's your hometown originally? Uh, originally, I grew up in the town of Hot Springs, South Dakota, which is uh, in the south, southwestern South Dakota in the southern Black Hills. What was early life like? there? Well, I mean, it was a very small town, uh, maybe 4,000 people. Uh, everybody knew each other. Uh, my dad was with the Forest Service, uh, and so he was stationed there, so it was a long way away from family. Uh, and it was really a great place to grow up with a lot of great people. It was truly kind of small-town America. And uh, uh, my dad loved, see, John Wayne movies, and so I grew up watching westerns and, and war movies, uh, and also documentaries like Victory at Sea and World at War, and I think I really developed my love for history there. Who's the first person you can remember that started teaching you history of any kind? 
started to, well i would say that was probably my dad talking about the, the second world war i mean he was he was a history buff too and and later in life uh, the history guy was something he and i could share which i really love so i think that he really sparked that initial love of history uh, I, I can say and I, I certainly don't mean any insult to any of my original teachers but uh, i have a lot of people who say to the history guy i wish i had a teacher like you in high school i, I think i would have enjoyed history uh, those were generally the kind of teachers that I have. I, I didn't get my passion from history from those teachers. Part of the reason I do the history guys because I, I kind of wanted to do a different version where you know history doesn't have to be boring. So I, I think I got my love from my dad. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think I got it from Mrs. O'Connell in seventh grade. Your favorite kind of history. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm terrible at anything that says favorites. I mean, one of the reasons that my channel is what it is. Yeah, there's a lot of history channels on YouTube, and they tend to you know choose their space, talk about something specific, war history or uh, nautical history or sports history or whatever. And I, I like to go anywhere and talk about almost any kind of history. Uh, and it's because I don't pick favorites because I think it's fun to be able to sort of hop around and do all sorts of different things. So the general way I answer that question is to say my favorite, my favorite part of history, my favorite historical event is whatever one I'm working on today. Uh, and that video will go up tomorrow. And then in the next day, I'll be on to a new favorite. Out of those 700 episodes, which one has gotten the most views? You know, that is a funny story to me. Uh, a couple of years ago, in 2019, I stumbled on this article that talked about a different kind of screwdriver that's used in Canada that's not much used in the United States. Uh, and it was an interesting story about why the Robertson screwdriver is so popular in Canada, but almost unknown in the United States. And I said, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story. And, you know, it has to do with this inventor in Canada trying to sell his, his screws to uh, to Henry Ford, and Henry Ford wanted to control manufacturing, and the guy in Canada didn't want to, him to control manufacturing, so he decided he wouldn't sell a screwdriver in the U.S. So it's about the Robinson screwdriver versus the Phillips head screwdriver. It, and I had no idea when I put it up how popular it would be, but it is by far my most popular episode. It's gotten, I don't know, more than a couple of million views. What kind of different vignettes that you've done uh, that have gotten the least views? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm disappointed anything doesn't get more than 100,000 views. And, and actually, some of those are my earlier episodes, and so I just didn't have as much of a fan base then. But, I mean, we know that, you know, some of the things that we put up might not be as popular as others. I mean, I, I have to admit, my uh, my fan base, my watching base is, is about 92% male. So if we do anything that you would talk about being you know, female history, uh, then it doesn't tend to do quite as well. Uh, and but you know we don't we just make the the history that we want to talk about and so some of the ones that are lesser watched might be talking about say a, a female character as opposed to a male character in history and and you know I'm I'm fine with that if it if it broadens our audience and even though it doesn't hit the core audience it's it's good for me uh, so we have a few that you know maybe forty fifty thousand people have seen them over time and and you know several that more than a million have seen. When did you leave South Dakota? Oh, I left South Dakota. I, I graduated high school in 1982, and by then my father had already been reassigned. I was the last person in my family that, that remained in Hot Springs. I'd been there since kindergarten, and so uh, when my, my father uh, moved, I didn't want to spend, you know, having to spend the entire life in Hot Springs, I didn't want to spend the last two years of school somewhere else. And so uh, when I left, there was really no one else in town to go back to. Uh, I originally went to the University of Wyoming, and I, I finally finished uh, my coursework at the University of Colorado. That's where I got my bachelor's in history, and, and uh uh, I wander back to South Dakota now and again, but I haven't I haven't lived there since uh, 1982. When did you decide to major in history? Uh, you know, that's a yeah, well, that's a story in itself too. Originally, uh, I was thinking of becoming a lawyer, which is kind of a family business, and uh, and I studied political science. 
but really what happened was I was at the University of Colorado, and I was a few credits short. I probably could have done those in a summer. But uh, essentially, my dad said we had enough money for me to do another year. And I was a fan of history. Uh, and so I decided, you know, since I could do another year of school, that I would do a history major in just one year. And so I took all of my history coursework in a single year in two semesters uh, and completed the degree in history uh, back in, that was in 1985. And what about your education in speech communications? Yeah, then I went, I, I actually debated all the way through college. And so when I graduated at the University of Colorado, I, uh, I was offered a graduate assistantship in speech communication up at the University of Wyoming, which is where I had started my school, and I knew people up there, uh, in speech communication, and, and then to help coach the debate team there. And so I, I, I moved up there. I got my master's in speech communication. That led me to teaching at a university in Arizona, which I taught at for a little bit more than a decade. Uh, but I didn't teach in history. I taught in speech communication. When do you find, and whether it's your teaching that you've done uh, or your time working in industry, that people start to pay attention to anything? Uh, well, what I would say, because I was in corporate training for a long time, and the, the most important thing in corporate training at the very start is to make uh, make sure they understand what's in it for them. Uh, and it's, you know, salespeople don't want to give you time until you say, this is how this is going to help you out. And then they are happy to give you time. And so that, that's the, the big lesson that I always learned in speech communication. We used to call that whip them, what's in it for me. Uh, but it's, it's when you can bring it to something that, that they see as important. It's why that's a good use of their time. Uh, and it's, it's a little harder to do on YouTube because I don't know, you know who each member of my audience is specifically. But, I mean, one of the reasons that, that I do short history, one of the reasons that I, I, I do a breadth of topics, is because I want to be able to find an area where you have your personal interest and therefore that's your involved. So it's hard to have people interested because you're interested. What you need to do is to tell them why you know, they should be interested for their interest. And, and that's kind of part of why I try to draw it in and part of the, why I do some of the things that I do, like catchphrases or try to have snappy endings and things like that, that just, just helps people to, to see why it's to, to their advantage, why it helps them to, to hear what they're hearing. One of the reasons we want to talk to you is to find out how you did what you're doing now. And I want to go back to 2015, if I read it correctly, after 11 years with Anthem, you, mm -hmm. were, you were fired? I was laid off. I mean, uh, it was uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, kind of changed the ground for the healthcare industry. Uh, and eventually what I was doing just didn't make as much sense for them to keep me going. You know, in the corporate world, you can't expect to be there. So they decided to go a different direction. Uh, most of the people in my division ended up being laid off. Uh, but I happened to have a good package. I got about a year worth of, of severance. Uh, and so I, uh, I used that time to try to think I was going to rethink what I wanted to do in life and eventually uh, – decided not to go back to the corporate world and to see as a, as a, as a 50 mid fifties, uh, corporate executive to see if I could make my life as a, as a social media influencer on YouTube. Where were you living when you were working with Anthem? Uh, I, I was living where I am now, which is uh, on the Illinois side of the river from St. Louis. And uh, my, uh, I, I worked with Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, which has the Blue Cross Blue Shield camp, uh, contract there in Missouri. Uh, and so I, I mostly worked in the city and then throughout the state of Missouri. So if I got in a car in St. Louis, how long would it take me to find you in O'Fallon, Illinois? Um, 18 minutes. And why I'm did you say quite a lot? So it's really a suburb. Yeah. And so 2015, you leave Anthem, you have a year's severance. When did the light bulb go off? And had you been a YouTube user at the time? 
<laughs> I had I had barely seen YouTube. I had no idea how YouTube worked. But I, I was thinking, oh, I'll just reemploy on the same thing that I was doing, which is the lazy way to do it when I really think about it. But I mean, at the time, you know, I had connections. I thought it would be great. Uh, and I had a lot of jobs come very close and then, you know, something would fall through. They needed someone to move and I didn't want to move or something like that. So uh, I one day I had been interviewing for this job. It was a great job. It was a great fit. And on Friday, the hiring manager said, you are perfect for this job. Expect on Monday for human resources to call with an offer. Uh, and on Monday, they didn't call. And so finally on Wednesday, I called her and I said, uh, you know, is something going on? And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. But over the weekend, after I told you that, we got acquired in a merger uh, and now instead of hiring people, I'm laying people off. Uh, and that was the thing that struck me to say, you know, I maybe I'm not just going to easily get rehired in my industry and maybe I should rethink what I want to do. And then do I really want to go back to a cube and keep selling health insurance? And that that gave me the idea that I've, I've always been telling stories about history and people seem to love it. Uh, and so I decided uh, maybe I'll see if I can uh, you know, find a way to make money doing that. And I really had to follow my nose. I mean, the first time I tried to make one, I tried to make it on my iPad. It was terrible. Uh, and I wasn't going to put that out there. And I eventually went to Best Buy and I bought a camera. It happened to be a good one that someone had returned. So I got it at a good price. And I just sort of fumbled around and figured out how to do it. And uh, I really still liked my very first episode, which was about a naval supply depot in Utah. Uh, and it's just kind of gone from there. So YouTube, do you pay to get on YouTube? No, no. Uh, I, I mean, essentially what YouTube is, is it's like television uh, except they don't make the content. Someone else makes the content. And then if people watch it, then they can put ads on it. And then they, they pay me part of the ad. So it, the getting on YouTube, uh, you don't you don't pay them or anything like that. But it takes a while for you to build enough audience that you can even monetize your channel, which means that you can sell Google ads for them. And then uh, even then you're only paid really for the ads that people watch. And so when you're small, you know, people aren't watching the ads and you're not making any money. So uh, the way that YouTube works is once you get big enough and enough people watching you that it makes sense that the advertisers for Google that pay YouTube want to put ads on your channel and that people actually watch those ads, then Google gets money for those and they split that 50-50 with me. Uh, and so I, what you do is you come on with your television program and then you have to, by force of your own quality program, you have to attract enough people that then they'll start putting ads on there just like they do on television. Uh, and then you can start making money. And eventually you can do, I mean, I, the fact that I'm as old as I am and then I picked up YouTube when I did and then I'm you know, not only paying my bills but actually paying another couple of people now it's a, now it's a company with three employees uh, is it, it, a sign that you know, there's really opportunity in the social media world and it's something you wouldn't have expected. Let me tell you what I see when I watch you and tell me when you decided to do this. I see you sitting, and I understand it's your basement, uh, with your black rim glasses – with your bow tie, and it appears to me you change that bow tie every episode. I see you with uh, all kinds of hats and helmets on the wall behind you. There's one picture above your head that seems to change from time to time. And uh, when I watch, I, I see a really fairly fancy opening that shows you uh, THG, which is your the history guy slogan, and uh, when did all that kind of come together? And am I right about what I'm seeing? Yeah, that's that's all true. And I mean, it took it took time. I, a lot of I, I might suggest if someone was starting YouTube that they kind of think about things like branding ahead of time because I didn't. I just sort of jumped in, and some of that stuff sort of developed over time. Uh, I, I, it started out. I wore you know I, I was in my office down there. I do. I'm a, I love history, so I collect all sorts of historical junk. So I just put it on the shelves behind me so that people could see my collection, and people do seem to enjoy that. 
Uh, and uh, and I, at first, I didn't know. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to, you know, not be too casual, which YouTube generally is. I, I always wore at least a jacket, but I didn't know what kind of tie to wear or anything. And one day, I, I happened to know how to tie a bow tie, which is kind of a lesson of skill these days. So one day, I pulled out a bow tie and I wore it. And my few fans at the time, there were probably a thousand people watching at the time, said, "Hey, that's cool." And I've worn the bow ties ever since. Uh, and I do. I wish I could change them every episode, uh, but I, I don't have 700 bow ties. I wish I did. But I mean, the, one of the ways that I know that I have hit 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 success in life is that there's a fantastic manufacturer of bow ties who now gives me bow ties for free, just as long as I put in the description of my episode that they gave me the bow tie, and you can buy it from them. So now I get free bow ties just for being the history guy. And the, the bow ties become such a thing that people sometimes see me out in the world. They have trouble recognizing me if I'm not wearing a bow tie. They, you know, they think I probably live my entire life in a bow tie. Uh, and, you know, other things just developed along like that. At some point, I got big enough that, uh, uh, you know, just it was really my wife's family and I were sitting around and said, we really need to have some sort of logo or something, a watermark that you can put in the corner to say it's yours. And so we kind of came up with that THG logo, which we use a lot now. Uh, those intros that you talk about that look so fancy, that's actually a very simple web program where all I have to do is throw my, my logo into it. And, and I do highly recommend it. It's really easy to use and you just pay like a monthly subscription. So those I'm, I make those, but they don't take much to make them. And uh, all that stuff just sort of came together. And as people like things, then we kept doing it more. And, and uh, uh, so I do have I have several different kind of pictures that I hang up and I and I sort those around. I move the stuff that's in the back that I collect. And, and uh, I have a lot of I collect vintage military hats and all sorts of little crazy hats and stuff like that so i move those around and to an extent that's almost as much a show a part of the show as whatever we're talking about people really get excited about the, the things that, that occur on the set and all that adds together to to be successful on social media i mean you really you have to create your own brand and mine i kind of stumbled through with time to a brand uh but i I think if you were starting, if you really thought that through at the start, you might have been able to get there more quickly than I did in terms of figuring out how to how to brand the history guy. But uh, the brand of the history guy is really, you know, my personality. There's no, there's no other way to put it. I collect a lot of stuff. I love to show the stuff that I collect, and I kind of think it's funny to wear bow ties. And so that, that's really me there. Have any idea how many you have? How many bow ties? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I've never counted. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm at least in the hundreds, but not enough that I could wear a different one every episode. So go back to the beginning. What was the exact first day in 2017 that you started? Uh, I think the first episode posted in March, and I would actually have to look for exact for say probably around like March 15th of 2017, I think was the first episode. And that was on the, the, the Clearfield Naval Supply Depot. And it was I had a hat that I had collected, a World War II Navy hat, and inside the guy said he served in Utah. I'm like, why, why was a naval officer in the Second World War serving in Utah? And it really turned out to be an interesting story, and that was my very first episode. How many viewers did you have? Oh, yeah, me and, and my mother. <laughs> so how did you begin? From the beginning, how did you figure out a way to market what you have, and how, how long did it take the numbers to keep going up and up? Well, I, I think I had a feel for what I wanted it to look like. I had a vision of the channel, uh, and uh, I mean, maybe from the very start. And part of my, my idea was, you know, if someone watches what I, what I do and they like it, they want to watch another one. And so I realized right away that what I had to do is get a lot of content up first, which I think a lot of YouTubers make that mistake is that they, you know, it might have a good video. But if you don't have a good video to follow that up with, then, uh, you know, then, then people you know, are lost pretty quickly. 
Uh, and so at first I just focused on getting a lot of content out so that they would have more things to watch. And then on, on posting very regularly, because once you start to develop fans and they expect for them to come and eventually we've gotten to where we are now where we post every, every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Uh, so some of that was kind of originally, at least in my idea of I wanted what I wanted to do. And I knew that I had an idea where I would have plenty of, I mean, I'll never run out of topics to talk about with forgotten history. Uh, and so that kind of, uh, 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 I mean, I knew that I could put up a lot of stuff. And once I got people watching them, they would enjoy it. And in, in terms of audience, it, it took a long time. I mean, I started in March of 2017. Uh, I was really hoping that this would pay the bills. Uh, and as of the end of 2017, I think I was in, uh, I, I earned maybe six bucks. Uh, they don't even pay you until you earn a hundred. Uh, <laughs> but then it was in almost a year later, uh, in February of 18, that one of the videos I had made that first year started to get a good number of views, started getting the tens of thousands of views. Uh, and then we went up from a few bucks to like 70 bucks. And then by, I think May, I got my first check was like four or $500. Uh, and then by August of that next year, so about what, 17, 18 months after I had started, uh, it was making enough per month uh, that it was paying our bills. So it took me about 18 months, and, and it was a slow climb. But, uh, I mean, some channels go faster, some channels go slower. But how did you market it? I, I Aside from, I, you know, I told my friends and family about it and put it out like on my own Facebook page and stuff like that. I didn't, I didn't do any marketing. You, you just... Uh, YouTube is a funny place. People have to start to find you. And once they start to find you, uh, then YouTube, the more you're watched, the more YouTube recommends you. And then the more you're watched. And so I, I, I honestly don't know where it really started. I, I suspect that that one video that I had made, which was about Pan Am Flight 6, it was about a, 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 a interesting airline disaster with the, uh, in the 1950s. I suspect that someone who had an interest in uh, in aviation history had seen that and probably posted it on a board or something somewhere, and it started to get interest. And then once you get one with a few tens of thousands of views, then that starts attracting people to more of your content. So I didn't, you know, I never put out a press release. I didn't go out and do any sort of advertising. I, I didn't pay YouTube or anything like that. I just kept making what I thought was good stuff and having faith that if it was good stuff, that eventually people would find it, and, and they did. I don't know whether this is on your uh, network or not. I mean, your YouTube site, <clears throat> but on some of them on YouTube, they you know eventually pops up in the corner five four three two one, and you can eliminate the ad and go back to the content. Do you have any of those? Mm -hmm. And if you do, do you get paid for those? So that's. I mean, the ads are produced by Google Ads. They're sold by Google. Uh, and so I don't control what ads are, there are. I can control, like, you know, how many of them they'll put in the middle of a video so that there's not too many ads in there. So I, I don't have any idea which ad you're going to get. So, yes, the ones that say, you know, you can skip the ad, for the most part, if you skip the ad, I don't get any money. For the most part, you have to at least watch through to the point where you don't skip the ad. Uh, or if you click on the ad, I get a little bit more money. Uh, or you can also pay, you know, a, a monthly to just watch YouTube. And, and w when that happens, I don't, you don't even have to see the ads. I just get paid because you watch the, the, the video. So it's, uh, uh, it, it really does depend upon people listening to the ads and watching the ads. And, and uh, uh, you know, for my sake, if you like what I'm doing and you, and you don't want to pay for YouTube premium, uh, then at least let the ad roll through until you're past that point where it says skip the ad. And if you watch it for about 30 seconds, then I get a little bit of money out of it. You mentioned you have three people working. I, I have seen your wife, and I have, I think I've just heard your son Joshua on something. Mm -hmm. uh, how many people total work for you? And are those the other two? Uh, you know, my my wife's no longer involved in the channel, and you know, it was my passion, not necessarily hers. 
but her sister, who is my sister-in-law, is my business manager. And it just as it started to get larger, we started getting all sorts of business inquiries. We started having opportunities to uh, do sponsored ads, which is a different way that you earn money on YouTube. And I just needed someone to manage that stuff while I made videos. And so Carolyn, who's my wife's sister, is my business manager. So I'm one of the employees, and Carolyn is the second employee. And then my son is the third employee. He was always uh, he always loved the channel. I mean, he grew up with me telling him stories about history. Uh, and he had another job. He was he uh, helped to run a, a nonprofit in Wyoming, but he was writing episodes for us now and again. And then we would give him credit and give him some money for that. Uh, and, you know, he started saying, you know, I really like this. I like this much more than my other job. And so we were able to last year uh, hire him on full time. And now he, he writes for the channel full time and he produces the podcast. So the three of us that are actually working on the channel is myself, my sister-in-law and my son. How do you find your podcast? Uh, that, well, wherever podcasts are found, because podcasts are, you know, YouTube, it's it's uh, almost all video content. There are other platforms, but almost all of it goes through YouTube. It, it, it really dominates the space. Podcasts, there's just a thousand places where you can find podcasts. So if you know where to find a podcast, and there's lots of them, you know, whether that's Amazon or Apple or any of other other places, just look up the history guy. We, are, we, we go through a service, so we say we are found wherever podcasts are found. Um, there are uh, one or two others that use the name The History Guy. I actually own that trademark, uh, but usually they're small enough that I haven't gone and tried to enforce it against them. But uh, it, it'll, you'll see what it is. You'll see that it's us. Uh, and the podcasts are their episodes that we've done on YouTube. Uh, you know, it's the audio from the episodes we've done on YouTube, plus my son Josh and I chatting about that episode and how we wrote that episode. And, you know, I think it's an awful lot of fun. Uh, they're posted every other Tuesday and, and wherever podcasts are found. How many episodes are you now doing a week? Uh, of, of YouTube, we're regularly doing three a week. I, I regularly do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, there was a period where I was trying to do five a week, and <laughs> a little much. <laughs> so we've gone to three a week. Every once in a while, I take a day off because uh, you know, it is a job, and I do have a life that I have to live. So for the most part, we're posting uh, you know, 12 episodes a month. And can you make a good living at, at this after these last four years? Uh, you know, I, I, I want to be careful about talking numbers. I can say that I am I am doing much better than I did as a fairly high placed sales executive uh, with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Yeah, I don't want uh, to know the number. I don't want to know the numbers yeah. so much as that you you can live uh, yes. operating this way. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, last year I paid more in taxes than I used to get paid. So yes, <laughs> you can do quite quite well on YouTube. How how surprised are you about the, your success? Oh, I'm stunned. I, you know, I, I, I would have thought it would have been the biggest dream in the world if I could just pay my bills, if I could eke by. Uh, and it's not, you know, I, I don't think that I'm rich, but it's, you know, I, uh, it's that I really don't have to worry about money and I can do what I love to do from, from my home. And, it, you know, it's, it's really, to me, absolutely living the dream because it's, I love to tell stories of history and I get to just go tell stories of history. And not only do people listen to me, but, you know, I can use that to, you know, to live my life and not have to do something else to pay the bills. So I, I'm shocked by it. I had no idea that you could necessarily make a good living on YouTube. I certainly, if I had ever thought at any point that instead of selling insurance or teaching at a university or whatever else I was doing, that I could have instead of made a living telling stories of history, I would have. And, and I was shocked that I finally got a way to do that. But as you know all too well, when we watch one of your episodes, there's video. Uh, that takes time. How do you do that? Where do you find the video? Does it cost you anything? Uh, for the most part, uh, we use uh, things that are in the public domain and uh, become quite adept at figuring out how public domain works. Uh, 
So for the most part, I don't pay for photographs and I don't pay for video. For the most part, I'm using video that's, you know, government work or work that's pre-1926 or stuff that's in the public domain. Uh, I do have a couple of, of uh, service channels where you can get some photographs or some video where we pay like a monthly and, and you can use some, you know, some stock footage and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, not a lot of it. Uh, and, you know, there are some tricks, uh, you know, newspapers published prior to 1926 are in the public domain. When we're talking about something post 1926, there's a trick that I'll, I'll let the fans in on. Uh, I have a, a fake headline generator, so I will go in and I will, I can't use the newspaper. It's not in the public domain, but I'll just create a headline that looks like it's a newspaper from the period, but I'm not showing you an actual newspaper from the period that's not in the public domain. I'm just showing you a, a fake headline generator that I've made to make it look like a newspaper. So, I mean, we use some different tricks, uh, but uh, rarely do we pay for the most part. And you know, part of that is just that you know, the margin is not huge on YouTube. And if uh, if you end up paying a lot of people to do production and stuff like that, then you're, you're never going to uh, be able to make enough money to pay your bills because you'll end up paying them. Uh, you know, if you buy a, an image from Getty Images for use on something like YouTube that's monetized, it's going to be four or five hundred dollars, and that's you know that's the, as much profit as you're probably going to make in the, in the first month. Uh, and so, for the most part, I, I really can't afford to buy images. Uh, we've just become very adept at going out and collecting in all the little dark corners of the web the things that it's perfectly legal for 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 us to use. Uh, and in terms of the production, uh, I I do that myself. And just like everything else, I just follow my nose. I went online. I researched programs that let you do video editing. Uh, and from the very start, I just bought a program without any training. I just kind of figured it out. And I've gotten certainly better over time to figure out more tricks and stuff with it. But it was, uh, you know, again, if a guy in his mid-50s can figure out how to do that by himself, then it's, you know, it's got to be something anybody can do. Not necessarily that anybody can do video editing, but I'm saying really anybody can find their passion and figure out a way to make that work. Because, I mean, my story is unlikely, and yet it's worked out. I've noticed that it seems to be there's some financial offshoots to this, including uh, I gather it's your speaking that you can do that, that you can find that through cameo. Am I correct about this? Uh, I do do speaking. What cameo is, which is really funny is, is cameo is this site where you can go to any sort of celebrity that's, that's on cameo. And for, you know, whatever the celebrity asks, I don't ask very much. I ask $35. Some of them ask quite a bit more than that. Uh, and you can request that they give you a personal message. So it might be someone that was on a sitcom or it might be a music star or it might be a, 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 a sports star or it might be a, a, a YouTube person like myself. And so for me, for $35, you go to Cameo and you request a Cameo from a history guy. And, and then I record a short video for someone saying happy birthday or Merry Christmas or, you know, a, a happy anniversary. Uh, and it's. I don't make a lot of money on Cameo. I mean, it's not, it's not, for, I think for some people it is. I think some people are charging hundreds of dollars per and getting all sorts of requests for it. I, it's just something that it, it's kind of cool that I'm able to interact with Sam that way. Uh, we also, we get money through uh, uh, a piece site called Patreon and, and the way that that works, and we might be shifting platforms at some point, but the way that that works is someone who just likes the history guy can just go in and for, you know, a little bit of extra ability to talk to me or see some stuff early or stuff like that to make it pay a little bit more. And it's, it's really a way for if you really like someone that's doing something cool, you can just give them a little bit of money each month to help support doing that. That's one of our revenue streams. Uh, and of course, we get most of our money from YouTube and Google ads, but you're also allowed on YouTube to do sponsored ads. And that is a, a sponsor will come to you and say, I want you to make a unique commercial for me and you build it into your episode. Uh, and we do that about twice a month. And, uh, you know, it, it is, I mean, it means that we spend a minute or two of the episode talking about a sponsor and, you know, people don't necessarily love that, but uh, it's a fair way. I think advertising is a fair way to, uh, to bring, you know, a connection between 
an advertiser that I believe in in my audience, and then they pay us to do that, and, and uh, that's another way that we bring in income. So we we figured out some different ways that you know we get a little bit of extra income off of the off of the YouTube side. And it's really just playing on the fact that there are people who love what we're doing and are willing to you know give a little bit of extra money to to support what we're doing, and I really do appreciate that. Except that in a couple of your ads, it seems to me you do your audience a favor. For instance, when you do the Magellan TV ad and also the Blinkist ad. Uh, you're mm-hmm. telling your audience places to go for more of what you're doing. Yeah, we, I love those, both the sponsorships. We've done lots and lots with Magellan. They've been very kind to us. They, they actually really support our uh, podcast, too. Uh, and and I, I'm a huge fan of it. It's it's a documentary service, so it's the sort of thing that I love, and that I think the people that watch my channel would love. And so my, my hope is to pick. I mean, we we get all sorts of uh, of, of people coming to us saying, "Will you sponsor? You know, will you accept our sponsorships?" And we try to be picky about uh, choosing things that, first of all, we believe in, and second of all, we think that our audience would be interested in. And we really appreciate the sponsors because, honestly, this would be very difficult to do if you can't find a sponsorship because those are really what. Uh, those, those kind of keep you afloat in, in, in a month uh, because you know you've got some guaranteed income there. Uh, and so I hope that what we're recommending is all good stuff. I certainly, every time you get someone who's like, you know, why did I have to watch a two-minute commercial? Uh, but, you know, that's you know, that's how most media works. You have to watch them on television. You have to listen to them on the radio, just kind of how we pay our bills. And so so hopefully we're, we are recommending things that are useful to the audience, so we're recommending it in a way that's useful to the sponsor, and then it's a good relationship between all three. And, and I, I just say I, I, I love our sponsors. They've treated us very well, and they really allow us to do what we do. But while I've got you, let me ask you about Magellan and Blinkist. What, does, what is Magellan? And, uh, and, and you said documentaries, but is it a large corporation? Where do you find it? How, you know, how do you subscribe uh, to it? So it's a, it's a paid channel. So you know, there's so many paid channels these days, you know, like Netflix or Hulu or, or, or Paramount Plus or well, there's, or, or, or Amazon Prime. There's bunches of those. So it is, it is run by documentary filmmakers. Uh, and it is a pay channel where you pay a little bit each month, and it's really not a very large fee, but you pay a little bit each month, and the, it's all documentaries. And it's it's largely owned by the people who make the documentaries. So you just go to uh, uh, com If you want to use uh, – we'll have a deal going all the time. Do slash History Guy, and there will be a deal there for History Guy viewers. But uh, And you just sign up for a, a monthly a subscription, and then you get access to these, like, 3,000 documentaries that cover – some of them are history. A lot of them are history, but there's also you know, science and nature and you know, all the stuff they make documentaries for. So it's really cool. It is a streaming service made by documentary filmmakers just of documentaries, and it's great for people that are big fans of documentaries. What about Blinkist? Uh, uh, Blinkist is, is another kind of service that's really interesting, that they take nonfiction books, and thousands of them, uh, and then they, uh, they'll give you a synopsis of that book, which you can get in written form, or you can also have it played as an audio. So they're going to say these are, the, they call them blinks. They say these are the, you know, the five or ten most important points from the book, so that you really get a whole idea of how the book works. Uh, so it's a great way to kind of absorb the main concepts of a book in a, in a really uh, a chewable amount of time, 10 or 15 minutes. It's great for something like when you're on the treadmill or something like that. Sometimes, uh, you know, that's all you need to know to really understand, you know, what you need to, to have a conversation at work or something like that. Sometimes that's just like this, you know, I, I read that book and I kind of forgot some of the stuff in it and this helps remind me. And sometimes it's like, wow, I really like this. I want to go buy that book. Uh, and so it's it's just a great way to get kind of a sample of a book, get the main ideas out of a book. And, and you know, there are people out in the business world that if you're not keeping up with all the you know the new newest business concept, then you're you know you you're not going to succeed. And this gives you kind of a, a really manageable way for you to do that. So I mean, I really love Blinkist. So we use it all the time. Revenue stream from your store. 
Uh, we don't make a whole lot of money there. It's just really fun. Yeah, we sell T-shirts and sweatshirts and, and phone cases, and, and uh, we sell my bow tie. We, I, I, I'm not sure if the bow tie's up there anymore or not. We only had a few of those. but uh, And uh, now we sell the beer glasses. And so so uh, that's a that's a store called Spring, and they interface very well with uh, YouTube so that, so that when you see us on YouTube, you can also see the store down below if you want to purchase some merchandise. Uh, honestly, I think I've sold more merchandise to my mom uh, than I have to the general public. <laughs> and, uh, and often if I have a friend who says, Hey, is that you on YouTube? Then I'll send him a free t-shirt or something like that. Uh, and so it's, uh, I, I'm, I wouldn't say that I make a lot of money out of t-shirts, but it's kind of fun. To ha- and I, I wear my t-shirts all the time. Uh, sometimes that's how people recognize. They'll, they'll be like, wow, is that the YouTube on, is that the history guy on YouTube? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And now the, you know, they see the t-shirt before they recognize me. Uh, so it's a, it's cool, and once you become as a social media influencer, whatever, whether you're doing you know uh, a YouTube or whether you're doing Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever, once you become popular enough that people recognize your brand, then you can start a store, and and it's not expensive because they mostly do it on demand, uh, and you know sell your 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 merch. Uh, but I'm not I'm not paying my car payment on, uh, on on my t-shirt sales. So if I came to your home in O'Fallon, Illinois, into your basement and watched you for a week. How would what would I see? How when do you how do you pick what you're going to do? How soon in advance of when you record them? Um, do you have to write them? How long does all that take? It's well, I mean, we produce a video every other day or three a week, so really it takes about two days to make a video. I think that shocks people, but if it takes more than two days, you're already off schedule. So I, I mean, we've got different ways that it, that it goes. So sometimes we are working with uh, uh, with someone else, like we work with the the USS Texas Foundation or the the Mob Museum, uh, or uh, in in Las Vegas, which uh, those guys are great, or the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum or the San Diego Air Space Museum. We've worked with a lot of great museums. Uh, we work with uh, the PR guys at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, and when we have those, uh, then uh, the, we write a script and then we send it to them to review and they look it over. And, and so those can take a little bit more time. Uh, but others, you know, we're writing, you know, just doing our own research here. I mean, it's, 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 it's happened. It's possible where I had a video due on Wednesday and at Tuesday at three, I still hadn't settled on the topic. Things weren't coming together. And I picked the topic at three o'clock and by seven o'clock the next morning, the video's up. Uh, so uh, what you would see is it depends on the day. Sometimes we're ahead and sometimes we're behind, but we're still always getting them up on time is what we got to do. Uh, some of the ones take a little bit longer, and that means that we have to have ones that take a little bit less time for us to be able to make up for the two. Uh, it's very helpful, of course, that my son now is a chief writer and that he's right about half the episodes or so he's writing. So we get more scripts. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing all the research. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so if you came, I mean, it would it would depend. I mean, some weeks you would find that I'm in that basement a lot, sometimes till, you know, 2 a.m. Uh, and sometimes you'd find out that I'm getting all my work done by noon and, you know, I could mess around the rest of the day. I mean, that's just that's all the joys of running your own business. Uh, you know, you you find out when to put the hours in, and if you don't, no one else does it, and so you just have to get it done. But I think if you can't, you'd probably be surprised. You'd be surprised how quickly episodes come together, and most of all, you'd be surprised at how messy my office is. If you came to my basement, uh, really the part the camera's p- pointing out is the only part you can even move around in, and <laughs> the rest of it is just boxes full of all those toys that I put up behind me on the set. When you record this, is there anybody in the studio with you? Uh, uh, very often, uh, my cat, Lucky, is laying on the chair, uh, and that's yeah, she's my recording partner. Uh, no, I record it by myself, uh, and uh, so it's it's just me and the camera, and and then I do the production of that, and I, and, and turn that into a video. Uh, and aside from the cats, almost never is there anybody else in the office. Who do you read in history 
historians that I'm looking at um, that have over the years been of primary interest to you? Yeah, I, I like a lot of the the more popular ones like McCulloch or Ambrose. Uh, I mean, those are the ones that I, I used to read a lot. I, I would say that now, you know, we we see topics, and then I go ch- choose a book that fits a topic, and so it's a lot more varied, and, I, and I'd be you know, less able to say, oh, there's a particular historian that I like. So, I mean, I could recommend a lot of historians that I think are written fantastic books. I really like the way Candace Millard writes. I'm a big fan of her, the story of Roosevelt and the, on the Rio Roosevelt, which is a really compelling story on the River of Doubt. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, but I, I really, now it's just so eclectic because, you know, we, you know, one day we'll be talking about the, you know, a history of a battle in World War II, and the next day we'll be talking about the history of dandelions. Uh, that uh, uh, just like, you know, asking what my favorite time in history is, I, I, I can't, tell a favorite history author because I, I, we read just too much varied stuff and whatever you're doing at the time is just fascinating. We'll go back to the Indianapolis 500 because mm-hmm. you did a, you did a, uh, one of your segments on Andy Granatelli. Who, who, mm-hmm. who was he and why did you think people would be interested in him? Uh, we, uh, about a year, I guess it was the fall of 19, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum reached out to me and said, you know, we've got someone on our board really likes your channel. What do you think about making some episodes regarding the Indy 500? Uh, and I was, I was for how great to be able to work with the people at the museum, which is an amazing museum with an amazing collection. So that's one of several that we've made for them. And actually that one, we, uh, my son and I traveled out to Indianapolis and we're in the, in the Speedway Museum there. They were doing an exhibit on Andy Granatelli. Uh, and so we were talking over topics and that was a good one to do. Uh, so, I mean, he's a really he's a really fascinating guy, but he's very important in the history of motorsports because he was this innovator that built all these unique cars. Uh, even though he, he came close to winning, his cars came close to winning the Indy 500 several times, and then something would go wrong. So it, was, it took him 20-some tries before he finally won the Indy 500, and he was so happy that he kissed Mario Andretti on the lips. Uh, that was his driver. Uh, so, I mean, he just, he's a character and an interesting story, and it shows really kind of the variety of stuff that we talk about on the history guy. So he's very important to the history of the Indy 500, but he's also important to the entire history of motorsport, and he's most famous for the because uh, he was the, 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 the CEO of the company that made STP, uh, Scientifically Tested Petroleum. But, you know, that I, if you, you probably remember the day when STP stickers were everywhere. Every time you went to the gas station, you could get one, and they were stuck on every car and every kid's bike. That was all his idea. To, you know, he sold that brand so strongly. And then he made these race cars that were, you know, bright red. And everybody knew what they were. And uh, he, he sponsored uh, uh, NASCAR and uh, and uh, Indy cars. Uh, and so he just, uh, uh, even if you're not a fan of motorsport, he's just such a, uh, you know, an interesting, fascinating, flamboyant personality who made something of it. And him on the, you know, him in the pit there, they're pulling the car in and he's wearing a suit that says STP all over it. And I mean, you just have to appreciate that personality. Uh, that helped to drive, you know, innovation and excitement for this this uh, this race that is so important to Indianapolis and such a spectacle in motorsport. So, yeah, that's that's an example. Though, that, you know, we went to the museum and we talked about what they wanted to talk about, and we've made several episodes uh, with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, and it's helpful because it's you know it's great. It's, it's just great to work with a fine organization like that. I mean, it's you know, as a historian, it's 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 great to have someone like that Motor Speedway Museum reach out to us. But it, it's also helpful because they've got lots of photos and media that we don't have to pay for because uh, they're happy to let us use it because we give them advertising. And so, I mean, we had a great time. My son and I had a fantastic time going to the Speedway Museum. We got to go down in the basement where very few people get to go. And then we even got to go in the vault where even fewer people got to go and, and learn a lot about the history of that track. And it's just such a rich history there. 
Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure working with the IMS people. And the Granatelli episodes, uh, there's a lot of people that recognize him. Anybody that has been involved in the race there for years recognize him because he was just uh, ubiquitous on the sidelines. And he attended the race apparently for more than 40 years, uh, uh, even when he wasn't running one of his own cars there. And he did some of the most iconic cars and some of the most iconic drivers of the race uh, were, were racing his cars. And so he's just he's just a cool, you know, big personality that had a big impact in this, you know, this this bit of sports history so we're talking to you on a wednesday and this is a day that you i assume put up a new episode what Mm -hmm. time of day do you do that it goes up at 7 a.m central is when they post and how do you do it uh well yeah i mean i i got done producing that one actually that one wasn't fully produced until uh around midnight is when it finally got uploaded so so I go, I write a script, I go in my basement and I tape it, and then I come upstairs and I use a program called Power Director to turn that into a video, and then uh, I convert the video into an MP4, uh, and the MP4 is what uploads to YouTube, uh, and then I can schedule on YouTube when it goes live, and that's, you know, that's the whole process. So this one, uh, I had the topic on Monday, but I mostly started writing it yesterday, and in around, uh, uh, and it's my, my daughter's Christmas break, so in around taking my daughter out to lunch, and uh, and uh, doing other stuff. I got the script written and then get it all taped up and put it up. So it was mostly produced in one day and it's up this morning and then we'll have another one up on Friday. So if it was up at seven o'clock uh, central time, when do you mm-hmm. start to see whether or not anybody's uh, the numbers are, go- are growing? Well, you, actually, after the first half hour of posting and one of the secrets to YouTube, I don't know if this is true of all social media, but one of the secrets to YouTube is to post consistently. I mean, our viewers know that on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, there'll be a video going up at 7 a.m. Central. And so there are people that sit and wait for that to happen uh, or they've got it scheduled so that they get a not- notification when it goes out. Uh, and so in the after the first half hour, it will tell you how it ranks versus the last 10 videos you posted. So it'll have a number from one to 10. And so, you know how well it's doing based on how well it is versus the, the the rest of the last 10 videos that you posted. So you love to have a number one and it shows a little fireworks display when it says number one. Uh, but uh, uh, if it's, you know, number eight or number nine, like you wish it would do better. And, but, uh, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what's going to happen because sometimes they really pick up in the, in, in a few days. And then sometimes some of those videos that, you know, when they, when they originally posted, they didn't do so well. You look back and a couple of months later, they'll have hundreds of thousands of views. And sometimes they're rediscovered in ones that we made years ago or suddenly getting tens of thousands of views. So, so you do have a vision how it's doing today after the first half hour, but you never have an idea how much it's going to get in a year. I mean, some of those will get a huge number and some of those just, just don't flow somewhere. And that's just kind of the, the randomness of YouTube. We spend a lot of time here talking about presidents. And I noticed that periodically you will have an episode on presidents. And one of those that caught my attention was the one you did on Woodrow Wilson's stroke. Mm-hmm. What uh, What's the background on that and why did that get your attention? Uh, it's a compelling story. I think. I mean, I know that I heard in history class just that he had had a stroke and that his wife was kind of in charge at the time and that she was kind of America's first female president. That's the kind of story that people hear. Uh, but I, I and that had been in the back of my mind among my many topics for YouTube. But uh, I, I decided really to go kind of delve into that a little bit more and see what really happened. And, and honestly, I was surprised by by some of it, how how far it went, how deep it went. So it is a compelling story. 
Uh, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, I mean, in modern times, we have a lot of discussion about the health of presidents. Uh, and it's, it's amazing that for a period of, of, of 18 months or so, uh, the president of the United States was essentially incapacitated. And uh, the, his, his wife and his doctor just essentially refused to tell the cabinet and the Congress and the people exactly how he was doing. At, at points, it seems like his doctor was just straight up lying to the cabinet about his health. Uh, and and uh, you know no one could do anything about it. I mean, so uh, I mean it's really a fascinating time. One of the things that I talk about with history is that anything you think is bad today, we've been through worse in the past, and we lived through it. And, and it's always interesting to see that because I think we tend to think that today's worse than other times, and until you really hear what other times were like. So it was something I'd heard before a little bit of that I wanted to do more. And when the more I did research, the more interesting it was. And it's 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 truly a compelling story if you think about really how terrifying that is. Uh, because the war is just over. He's just come back from the Treaty of Versailles, the, 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 from negotiating the Treaty of Versailles. We're trying to decide if the United States is going to ratify the treaty, which, of course, we ended up not ratifying the treaty. But we're also we're bringing home millions of troops. We're facing all sorts of labor unrest that we kind of tamped down during the war. We're facing the post-war recession. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things the nation is facing. And, and the president was he had a history of cardiovascular disease and had, it was exhausted from his work at the Treaty of Versailles, maybe had suffered from Spanish influenza the president suddenly has this debilitating stroke uh, and the nation doesn't even know you know whether he's alive and and you know we operate for 17 months without even the vice president knowing what's going on and uh, and if something really bad had happened no one really knows who would have been you know in charge uh, and so that's it's a fascinating thing it's kind of a scary thing to think about it's a scary thing to think about you know today and you know, of course today you'd never get away with that there's no way that the president could just you know be hiding in his bedroom for 17 months and not talk to uh, anyone and have people say well you know what are we going to do so uh, uh, it's just, it's an interesting, compelling story. It's a video well worth watching, and it's a piece of history that's well worth researching because it's, it's, it's sort of surprising what the nation survived and the lessons that we learned from that. Another one you did is Theodore Roosevelt and the, uh, mm-hmm. I think you called it the three presidential close calls. What was mm-hmm. that? What was that? Uh, that's it. I mean, we actually talked about three of them in that one, but I mean, with Theodore Roosevelt, it's really uh, a, a, a fascinating story. You know, he was vice president. Uh, he was not someone that people really thought of becoming president. Uh, they almost uh, decided to make him vice president to kind of get him out of the way because he was too rambunctious in politics and vice presidents don't do anything. Uh, and then an anarchist shoots McKinley uh, and Roosevelt is president. Uh, and so he's doing a tour shortly after becoming president. There's no new, there's no vice president. The, the vice president hasn't been replaced. And he's going to go do a speech and uh, his, his carriage gets hit by a trolley uh, that was ironically carrying people that were rushing to try to get to his speech. Uh, and it, it killed his Secret Service men, and uh, it uh, injured everybody in the in the carriage. It injured the president fairly severely, and they took a leg injury that it ended up being, uh, you know, it, it didn't kill him, but it ended up being part of what caused his death eventually you know, years later. Uh, and so it's it's a it's an interesting. I mean, that video is about these are these close calls that we had at specific times when it really could have made a you know a, a significant difference, and that was one of them is to say the nation was in shock. The president had just been assassinated. The new president is just meeting the people, essentially. And just then, when we don't even have a vice president, he is nearly killed in this freak accident. Uh, and and it's, it, it leaves you to think, you know, what would have happened had he been killed? And how would the nation have responded if we suddenly didn't have a president and, and, and they had to dig, you know, beyond uh, the, the people that were elected in order to find a president? Uh, and it, it led, again, to us changing law so that we uh, so that we Know, have a more clear uh, a, a chain of command if something like that happens. 
uh, and it's with Roosevelt is particularly interesting because he's such a robust guy. But I mean, that injury uh, after he left the presidency, and, and uh, I mentioned Kenneth Millard's book about the River of Doubt. He's he's down in South America exploring this this river that's never been explored by you know by by modern science, uh, and uh, and he's this the injury that he had in the carriage accident a- a- aggravates, and he almost died. I mean, he he was dying of a fever. He told his son to leave him behind to die. Uh, and he didn't. I mean, they, they got him out of there. But I mean, that was uh, uh, that was all the result of that that carriage accident. So you have these freak things happen at times when it would be significant. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of scary. And the videos about that. It also talks about uh, uh, FDR as president elect when an anarchist tried to assassinate him. And what would that have meant? Uh, because FDR was such a powerful personality during the war years. And, uh, and so it's 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 not it's not really the great man theory. It's not like what if FDR had died as a child, or what if Roosevelt had decided to keep ranching in North Dakota and never became president. It's really, I mean, they're they're at this really critical time, and they do a close call, and that has a more a direct idea about, gosh, how history could have been different if if that bullet had been a, a little bit to the left. How many subscribers do you have? Uh, subscribers were a little over a million now, about a million twenty thousand. Uh, so you get a you get a nice gold plaque from YouTube when you get over a million subscribers. You don't actually get paid by subscriber, uh, but uh, I mean those are, that means that those are people that are interested enough that they click that subscription button and want to watch your stuff on YouTube. So uh, that million was a great was a great line for us, and it was really enjoyable. We made a couple of videos about getting our plaque and what it means. When did and you we get? Very much appreciate our subscribers. When did you get the million? Uh, I think it was September. I did notice on your website that there are different subscriber levels at different prices, and what's that about? Mm-hmm. So uh, you can, um, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do on YouTube, uh, including YouTube Premium, where you just pay YouTube for a monthly s- subscription. But you can also become uh, a subscriber to a specific channel. Uh, and so you can go onto YouTube, and you can subscribe to the History Guy, and you get a little bit for that. Like, we, sh- we, we post some of the videos to you early, and, and we do some unique content. But it's just a way that you can give a few extra dollars to us. And then depending on – and if you say, if I want to subscribe for, you know, $10 a month, if you do that for three months, and we, we send you something in the mail, and we send you a sticker, and we send a little bit more, and we send you a challenge coin. So it just, it's another way for someone who really supports the channel and likes the channel uh, to uh, uh, to give us a little bit of extra money to support what we're doing and who wants to do what we do, and then they get a little bit more interaction with us. Uh, and uh, we are, uh, I'll, I'll say now, I haven't quite done it, but uh, we, we, we're thinking about trying to move all that kind of subscription stuff to a, a different platform. We have a better uh, ability to communicate with the people and have a, you know, kind of a richer experience with them so that people really feel like, you know, for that extra money, they're getting a lot more access to the discussion and the history guy and the stuff that we want to talk about. But it's it just... Uh, it's another way to do things, and and uh, and that subscription level means that you get a little bit of extra, you know, stuff from us. On a, on a personal side, uh, why did your wife stop doing it? Uh, you know, uh, you know, this is this is my dream. It's my thing, and she was excited at the start, and she did stuff with the channel at the start. But I mean, we just kind of learned over time that it's not necessarily her passion, and so we're we're letting her, you know, pursue her passion. She's a librarian uh, before when you met her. She's and she's back a librarian now. Is what she's she's doing now. And and uh, I, you know, it took me until my mid fifties to figure out really what I want to do with my life. And she's younger than I am, and uh, and so I, I'm giving her the freedom to find what she wants to do in life. Do I remember that your daughter's name is Willow? Yeah, yeah. Willow is my daughter. Yeah. Did she get involved at all? Uh, a little bit, yes. Uh, and actually, she's uh, Willow's an artist. She's uh, she's a freshman in high school. 
uh, and she she really doesn't involve much with the history guy, and we and we don't try to put her out much in public. But uh, Willow will sometimes do uh, illustrations, and those will those will be in the episode. So the episode I posted this morning as an illustration that Willow did for me. So she does, you know, she contributes in her way. I would say though, I mean, she's fifteen. Uh, the history guy's not her thing. I don't think I'm probably in her, her top 100 favorite YouTube channel. She watches a lot of YouTube and not a lot of history guy, and and, uh, uh, and that's fine. Again, I you know I don't need my passion doesn't need to be everybody's passion. So my my son absolutely loves it and loves being part of the channel. And, and Willow will find something else to be her thing. But she is. Uh, we've got her art in some of our episodes. Yeah. A couple more questions. Uh, did you ever, when you were studying history, did you have any sense that something like this would be possible? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I uh, all my life, I was telling stories of history, and all my life people would say, you should find a way to make a living doing that. And I would say, well, I, have, I don't know any way to make a living doing that. So if I if I had known there was a way to do that, I would have jumped on it right away. So I had no idea. I didn't imagine. I did not imagine that my passion as a history buff would ever turn into something that I could truly turn into a living. And it's just a, a, a fantastic blessing that it has. You told us earlier that you, if you look around YouTube, there are other history uh, channels and people doing things in history, and I—I I think I saw you on an interview with somebody who was not doing history so much, but doing the, an interview with you. Uh, how did you differentiate yourself when you saw that, and did you research what others were doing before you started? Uh, I didn't. I would recommend anybody starting YouTube maybe see what else is out there that people are doing what you're doing and make sure that you have something different. I was just—I had my own vision and I went with it, and I kind of discovered their channels as I went along. Uh, and I, I don't see them as competitors because I think everybody can watch, you know, a lot of stuff on YouTube. So I, I, I didn't really search for differentiation. I was just doing my thing. Uh, but I mean, when I watch, I mean, there's some that cover fairly similar topics. Uh, but I, 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 I think that my channel does things in unique ways. Uh, and I think among them that I may be more of a storyteller. I maybe I think, you know, they'll, they'll talk about a chunk of history, but I'm more trying to turn it into a single story and an episode with, you know, beginning, middle and end sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of channels are doing things similar to what I do, and, and uh, some of them do a great job of it. And, and uh, uh, honestly, if you're watching their channel, then you'll probably like my channel, and then YouTube will probably recommend me to you, uh, uh, me to you from them. And, and uh, YouTube, if you're watching my channel, will recommend them to you from me. And so I think that we all help each other. So, I, you know, I, some look more like me, some look less like me. Uh, and I think maybe what makes me different is that I really tell a story with passion, and that I, I have a very varied uh, subject matter rather than focusing on a single subject matter. Uh, but, I mean, uh, some of them might disagree and say that that's exactly what they're doing. So uh, I I don't. I don't try to compete. And I, I for the most part, uh, don't try to emulate what they're doing. I just try to do what I'm doing as well as I can and uh, wish everybody as much success as they can have. What impact did it have on you when you worked at Mount Rushmore National Memorial with a, I assume you had a Ranger outfit on, one the picture I saw of you. Yeah, I I did. Absolutely. I wore a ranger hat. Yeah, I was uh, I worked summer seasonally for Mount Rushmore for five years. Uh, and so what I did is I came uh, and uh, uh, in the summer when I was in college, I would go in the summer and I would give tours and talks and work the front desk and, and give the evening program. And you know, it was fantastic. Uh, and uh, what impact did that? Well, I mean, I I became a ranger at Mount Rushmore because I loved history. I lived in South Dakota at the time, so Mount Rushmore not far away. Uh, I I became a ranger at Mount Rushmore partly because I loved history, and that enforced that love of history. And then I've used that some in the channel. I've talked about some of the things that I did at Mount Rushmore in the channel. I think I have an episode about how Mount Rushmore got its name on the channel. Uh, and uh, I also, you know, love very fond of the four presidents that are on Mount Rushmore, and they've all found their way into the channel in various ways. But it's really just part of my of my 
my history of loving history that has worked its way into uh, the channel that, you know, the reason I was a ranger is the same reason I'm the history guy. Lance Geiger is the history guy. You can find him on YouTube and there, of course, our podcast. And we thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's my honor. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.